Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Bob Stelic. Bob is a sports marketing and communications expert, most well-known for his 12 years leading the business and public relations department for your Toronto Maple Leafs. Starting in the mid-80s and through the 90s, Bob had a front row seat to the ups and downs of a lease organization that to this day insists on giving us both heartburn and hope. After his Leafs career, Bob founded his own company, and 22 years later, he remains both president and CEO of Stellic Marketing Communications, a community-focused marketing, sponsorship, and public relations firm. Welcome, Bob, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, I'm just in sunny downtown Toronto on the Esplanade, sort of easing back into a couple of days in the office, and uh, I'm feeling great. So it's a, it's, a, it's a great day to be in Toronto. It's a great day to be on your podcast. Well, thank you. How's your summer going so far? Have you had some time off? Or are you working um, as hard as, as Yeah, ever? Well, well, it's that old COVID delayed thing. So in, next week, I leave for Normandy to do a three-year delayed cycling the beaches of Normandy trip. So I'm looking wow. forward to that. And, you know, I mean, COVID was tough, but storming the beaches of Normandy for Canadian troops, Juneau Beach, I think was a lot tougher. So uh, yeah, real respect for people there for sure. And are you are you in training for this journey? Yeah, I do cycle. Yeah. So I've been, yeah, we're not doing like 150 kilometers a day or anything like that, but it'll be like 60 to 70 kilometers. So yeah, I, it's, it's toughening your butt up is the most important thing. Saddle, saddle toughness. So I think yeah. I should be fine. And I think you'll be eating pretty well over there. Yeah, there's, there's no, that's right. There'll be no shortage of, of quality food and wine in, in France for sure. Excellent. Uh, absolutely. Now it sounds like you're back at the office. What is the, uh, this, the structure of work these days? Are you home office, a nice mix? Yeah, it's a bit of a mix. It's trying to figure out really what the new reality is going to be for everybody. You know, we have clients like RBC that are just starting to come in, yet the people who work at the branches have been in for, you know, 800 days in a row or, you know, throughout, throughout the pandemic. So it's, uh, I, I have no, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, variables right now and uh, we're all trying to figure that out. You know, why is there such a labor shortage you know, why, you know, why is there some, you know, what's going on with inflation? You know, it's a, we're sort of in uncharted territory. So the sports world is, is, is for once is saner than the rest of the world. <laughs> well, that's a welcome change. Yeah. With your permission, Bob, let's go all the way back and get the Bob Stellick story. Where were you born and raised? Yeah. Um, I grew up in North York and, um, and sort of the, you know, it was a sport was a, a thing I did for fun in the neighborhood and that and never had any plans to work in sports. So it's sort of a, um, a business that I fell into the, the way that Gordon and my brother Gordon and I both got into it. Well, Gordon got in as a press box runner for the Leafs when he was in high school. And when the Blue Jays came to Toronto in 1977, um, technology was changing and we ended up getting a job with a media services company. So for example, if you were a writer for the New York times in the, in the late seventies, you would come to Toronto, type on your, manual typewriter your story and you would have to get it transmitted back and um, so the way it worked was either via fax machine which took you know four or six minutes a page or um, um, these 50 pound computer input terminals were coming and my brother Gordon and I both are have a genetic pro- ability to type really quickly so we got this job basically managing the Toronto area for while well, we're still in high school for this this company and so we worked Leafs, Blue Jays, Argos, Ticats, Canadian Open Golf, Tennis, went to the Commonwealth Games in Edmonton, Super Bowl. 
just sort of was the way I paid my way through school, but I had no desire or inclination to really work in sport. So it was sort of a, it was before sport became as glamorous as it is now. Well, I always thought one of the most valuable courses I ever took, grade nine typing. And it sounds like it got you and Gord far. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, a hundred percent typing. <laughs> typing back then was not a sexy skill, that's for sure. But it's, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. If you could do, I mean, 70 words a minute, you could uh, you didn't have Murray Chass from the New York Times breathing too heavily down your neck if you, as he went to deadline after a Blue Jay game in the late 70s. Now, Bob, on this podcast, we like to go all the way back. When I said all the way back, you skipped over all the good stuff. I'm a North York oh. boy myself. So where, what hospital were you born at? What neighborhood well, did you grow up in? Well, originally, originally um, I was around Davisville, and uh, my family were around Davisville, Mount Pleasant. The the, my dad um, was a Czech immigrant, a refugee, and um, he got into the high-tech world of radio and television repair in the 50s and uh, had his own business. And then we moved, to, we had a fourth, four kids, so the house was too small in that neighborhood. So we moved to this, as my grandmother called the Sticks, which was Leslie and Shepard in North York when I was six. And, uh, you, know, went, you know, went to elementary school, George Vanier High School. And then I went to, um, from there, I went to um, U of T downtown and took commerce and finance, went to Vic for four years. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very Toronto-centric that way, for sure. Absolutely. We, I was also in the sticks. It's exactly what they called it. I was at Van Horn and Vic Park. Oh, uh, very close. And I went to A.Y. Jackson, just down the street mm-hmm. from where you used to live. And it was funny, my, my parents, they must have been, felt like they had moved you know, the way we talk about people living in Barrie or, uh, or further, that's the way it was talked about back then. And and now that same house at uh, Van Horn Vic Park, it's, it's pretty central. Yeah. It's a, I mean, um, A.Y. Jackson was our arch rivals in football and uh, in, in grade 13, we, we lost the city championship to you guys. And uh, um, yeah, all I remember is I was at one of my, I played, um, outside linebacker and your tight end was a guy named Steve Delcall who went on later to play for the Argos. So uh, to say that it was a bit of a challenge for me, at, he was like, I think even in grade 13, he was six, five two twenty. So like he was bigger than any of our linemen and, uh, and liked to use his high quality gold AY Jackson helmet. He would lead with that in your chest. So yeah, I think my brother Gord's had Steve on his shows a couple times. I saw him at our high school reunion because he married a Vanier girl and, I still, I still believe I'm suffering from either PTSD or post-concussion syndrome from him from that game. But uh, well, the, the stories usually get better over time. But it's, it's completely. It's, it's like it's like Al Bundy and Tony Soprano, right? <laughs> Poke you never had the makings of a varsity athlete. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Now, Bob, did you have any interesting summer jobs either while you're at Vanier or when you're at U of T? Well, the. The, the I had a neighbor two doors down who owned a mattress factory in Weston. So I worked in a mattress factory for a couple of summers, which made me never want to work in a mattress factory or any factory. Yeah. Um, the That was a tough business. And uh, my first real job as far as was at McDonald's, the McDonald's at um, uh, um, Leslie um, and North of Finch there, that, that booming McDonald's. And, Absolutely. Uh, and that was back, I mean, and McDonald's was considered really um, high tech at, at that point. They were considered great trainers. So the next year, I got a job as a cook in a in a resort in uh, northern in on Sparrow Lake because of my McDonald's job, and uh, because I uh, 
they the owner believed that McDonald's really conditioned kids to 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 um, good training. So f- from that, really, so the sort of fluke that I ended up in um, uh, in the NHL was I was um, working for um, Gord got a full time job. He was hired by Punch Imlac um, when he was at. Um, First, he was doing game notes for Jim Gregory at Maple Leaf Gardens. Uh, Jim Gregory got fired, and um, Punch Imlac came in, and uh, Punch Imlac ended up hiring Gord full-time. And Gord was also um, um, helping Jimmy Gregory out at NHL Central Scouting part-time at that, uh, at that point. Jimmy had taken over that after he was fired from the Leafs. And um, so Jim Gregory, out of the blue, Gord couldn't work anymore, called called our house and he didn't really know me very well. And he said, um, uh, Gord picked up the phone and said, Jim Gregory wants to talk to you. And I said, you know, I'm Mr. Gregory. And he said, yeah, you know, um, are you interested in helping me out in the office on, if you've got some time? And I said, um, you know, Mr. Gregory, I mean, well, I have Fridays off, you know, from classes. I don't have classes on Friday. I could come. And I said, well, you know, to be honest, you don't know me very well. Or why, why are you asking me? And he said, um, he said, um, well, I had your – Gord did such a great job. I want to stay in the bloodlines. So uh, – and, and I'd worked at the Gardens, so a lot of people knew me at the Gardens. But So I started going out on Fridays while I was at school. So I was working Leaf games Wednesday, Saturday, and Blue Jays and stuff. And then I would go out Fridays to help Jimmy Gregory. And it was really administrative stuff. And um, after I graduated from university, there was no desire to work in sport. I, I started at those campus recruitments. I started working for Dow Chemical in a training program and, um, you know, didn't know much about chemicals. And this, but then Jim Gregory had a, his assistant, she had a health challenge. Um, so he was in a real bind when he was having scouts meeting is that. So I started going in and continuing to help him. And I'm sitting there going, why am I doing this? And I was really doing it because I, I, I loved Jim Gregory. Jim Gregory was, you know, outside of my father, he was the most impactful guy for Gordon and I yeah. in our lives. And um, uh, so then one day Jim called me up again, he out of the blue calls and said, um, Bob, you know, I'd like you to come work full time at Central Scouting. And I said, you know, Jim, I, you know, I think the world of you, but, you know, I don't want to be, you know, his assistant was a guy named, there was only two people in the office and a secretary and he, uh, Ken Slater was a great guy. I said, you know, I, you know, I don't want to be Ken Slater's assistant. I don't really see that as a full-time role. And he said, well, Ken's accepted the job as, um, as a uh, um, full, t- uh, basically a full, t- he's got the job as the Kingston uh, junior A team general manager. And I want to offer you his job. And I said, I, I want to train you. And I said, well, you know, that's great. So you mean I'm going to be working in the office? No, I want to train you to learn the hockey business. So, um, you know, and he said, we don't do that enough anymore. And uh, so I started working for him for two years. I worked as a, as a uh, office manager and scout. So I traveled, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a great time. It was a grinding time. So you'd work in the office from say nine thirty to three thirty. Then you jump in your car and drive to Peterborough or drive to Kitchener or drive to, you know, um, Oshawa, wherever a game was that day. And then on the weekends, you'd go to two games on Sunday and, the only game that was on was Saturday night Belleville. So you might get the night off or you, or you went to a game and, and then twice a year you went, I went on 23 day road trips to Western Canada. Wow. So you, and again, this is pre like pre internet, pre cell phone. So you just go and you have your schedule and you'd, you'd go from town to town scouting. And then you'd go to Quebec twice a year for eight, 
to nine day road trips. And then you'd go to the States a couple of times, Minnesota for a week and Boston for a week. That was sort of where the States was really up and coming. So that was a lot of hard work and a lot really interesting. And uh, that, that was the sort of the path that I was on. And then I got a call out of the blue again, one of these fortunate phone calls. And it was, uh, it was um, Harold Ballard and um, Stan Bodiak, the PR person for the Leafs had died. And so that's how you got a job opening at the Leafs. Yeah. Someone died, right? Yeah. And, uh, and um, so Gordon was working there full time in the hockey office. And uh, so um, Mr. Ballard said, um, you know, are you interested in doing so? Kind of set it up that the draft was in, this was 1985. The draft was in Toronto. Mr. Ballard being Mr. Ballard um, didn't let the NHL have it at the gardens. He, so they had to have it at the Metro Convention Center which was actually air conditioning, which was better than the gardens. That's and uh, the Leafs drafted Wendell Clark in the first round. And then I was at the, at the NHL table and um, Jim Gord came over and said to me, Mr. Ballard wants to talk to you. So I sat down beside Harold Ballard. So there was Wendell at the end of the table, me and Harold Ballard and the rest of the scouts, like the, like the draft last week. Yeah. And Mr. Ballard says to me, you know, well, you think you can handle the media? I said, yeah, yesterday, Ballard, I've worked with him for years, blah, blah, blah. You know, gave him my song and dance. And then he said, um, um, well, how much you want? And uh, <laughs> so Wendell's sitting at 18 with his Fu Manchu mustache. And I'm now negotiating with the owner for my salary. So, of course, I lied because that was the score strategy was tell him you make more. So I said, well, I make $27,000 a year. And, uh, and Mr. Ballard went, ooh, he didn't like that. And, uh, you know, or 25, I said, or something. And he said, well, I said, that's what I make at Central Scouting. And he said, uh, and he, see, he said, well, how about $27,000? So I was actually making twenty three at Central Scouting. So I was a Good raise. for you, Bob. Yeah. And then, then he said, um, then I said to him, I said, try to close the deal. I said, um, I also get a car at Central Scouting, which was a lie. I got mileage, but no car. And yeah. So he said, okay, I'll give you a car and um, a rental, like a lease car. And then I said, and, and what about benefits? And he said, <laughs> whatever your brother has. So this, the unfortunate part of the board was he was making 20,000 at that point in time. So he had to get a raise the next day to 30,000 because he'd worked there four years and was making significantly less than his sure. brother started the day before. So um, that was sort of a key Harold Ballard moment. He valued you more outside the company than you did inside the company. Yeah. Sure, once they have you like, and, and from what I heard from the old people around the garden is that, is that, um, you know, because Harold Ballard was the really jovial, jovial guy in his younger days and um, Pal Howells and the, the, yeah. other people, the Silver Seven or whatever they were, they were just partying guys. And, and Con Smyther is a real SOB and um, not a good guy, really hard on staff, really, he ran it like a regiment and yep. he considered himself lucky. So when Harold Ballard, like fluke ends up owning the company, which he doesn't have the money to own. That was part of his problem. It was all borrowed from TV. Mm-hmm. He used to say TV owns the place. And uh, he started, he emulate started to try to emulate Con Smythe. And again, you know, when we talk about tough bosses in the old days, that's what people were supposed to be tough bosses. Yeah. And Harold Ballard sort of evolved into that tough boss mode. And, um, and, and that was sort of a, that was sort of the challenge with the Leafs is the Leafs were, we, your team wants to be successful, but at the same time, we have to ha- handle Harold Ballard. 
Yeah. And so it became a dual track job. Right. And, uh, and the more and more it became handling and less and less team. And, and he really, like most people's grandparents at some point didn't really understand that prices were going up for contracts and all that type of thing. He was still in a stuck in the sixties in, in the eighties. Right. Yeah. Well, he, you know, Bob, even to this day, 30 years, more than 30 years after he's passed, Harold Ballard still gets blamed for what's going on today. Somehow you knew him, you worked for him. What was he like as a business person? You've alluded to it a little, but also what was he like as a person? Well, we used to always say that if you're, if you were in trouble, he'd be a great guy. He was a great guy on your side. So for example, we had a, a carpenter whose wife got cancer and Harold Ballard paid it for her to go to the Mayo Clinic. You know, there were things like that. I mean, he, um, he, you know, I mean, if you talk to a lot of the players, he got along really well with a lot of guys had more trouble with punch Jimlack, you know, when he was in the Daryl Sittlers than they did. That was pre my era, but um, yeah, it just, you know, it was just too bad that he didn't trust one of his kids or somebody else to relinquish some of the role. And, and, and realistically, um, that's what really led to, um, you know, when he passed Cliff Fletcher having such a great opportunity, you know, the, I, and as I moved more and more to the business side, Harold Ballard, you know, everyone said, oh, he was cheap. He was whatever. Well, the Leafs payroll when, when Gord was GM was 5 million Canadian. We were getting outbid by LA Kings for players for God's yeah. sake. Right. And, uh, but again, it was a small era. Like it was a small business back then, but at the same time, he, he got suckered into buying a CFL team in Hamilton that was losing over $4 million a year. So he... That was the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Tiger Cats, right. We could have... The Maple Leafs could have bought Wayne Gretzky every year for what we were losing in the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Mm. And so the point was this cheapness was the Leafs were this cash cow that was supporting all these other businesses. Like, for example, the Toronto Marlies were losing a half a million dollars a year. Um, he owned a print... He'd been convinced to buy a ticketing company that used to do our tickets called Dan's Printing. It was losing a million a year. And then the the um, farm team um, was also losing a million and a half dollars a year. So when Cliff Fletcher came in 1990, we had just basically cleaned, we cleaned everything out. We got rid of the tie cats. We got rid of the, the Marlies. We got rid of Davis Printing. And and essentially, Cliff Fletcher suddenly had seven or eight or nine million dollars of free cash flow that he could go out and do the, do the deals with Calgary who couldn't afford to sign Dougie Gilmore, didn't want to pay Dougie what he was worth, those kind of things. So, you know, I mean, so Harold Ballard was cheap on the Leafs side, but perhaps I wouldn't call it generous, but, but bad invest, investments on the other side. And, and, the, and the silly part that like the day Harold Ballard died, I mean, like, within three months, I was soliciting you know, the you know, liquor licensing to get beer in the building. Like it was, he didn't want beer, but beer was, like, I mean, it was just so much additional revenue. Like, yeah. you know, people would complain about their ice cream bar being a dollar fifty, but you know, yeah. a $5 beer was a bargain, right? <laughs> they ain't you know? seen nothing yet, Bob. Yeah. Well, they, he, really- would, he would love this now. He'd be so excited <laughs> to see $700 tickets and $22 beers. He'd be, he'd be in heaven. He would hardly believe it. But what's really interesting about what you're talking about is the money was being lost on all these ancillary businesses and what you're essentially saying is by cutting it down to the core thing, the Leafs team and the gardens, you could suddenly have a budget to, to make a better team. But now you look today, everything's about wideness and uh, uh, having a, a horizontal, having the real estate, the arena, having other teams, having other product lines. So when did that change come about that uh, 
all these ancillary things were losing money. And today they're an essential part of having a huge organization and a, and a strong business. Yeah. I mean, I think your integration needs to be smart for sure. I mean, that's different, but I think it, it Harold Ballard was of the era of the era of the sport on the, you know, the, the empresario, right? So, I mean, the NHL teams weren't owned by publicly traded companies. They were owned by guys and these guys, just like the, you know, when you're watching the, the doc, you know, pseudo documentary on the LA Lakers right now, just, I mean, thinking, exactly. When you, but when you think about the St. Louis blues, I mean, they were essentially a bankrupt team that they sold the arena and the team in 1984 for $5 million. Right. I mean, it was a really, it was a small business sport and entertainment were not big businesses and, and their big businesses. Now it, it would happen really was TV, TV exploded. Like it's, and, 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 and really the, 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 the movement out of, of everybody can afford a ticket. Like when Harold Ballard died, I think a gold ticket was 28 bucks. Amazing. You know, that ticket would be $450 now. Right. I mean, you know, the inflation doesn't remotely cover that. It's just people, people, uh, just wealth and entertainment and, uh, that real, that real change, but TV was the explosion. Now you're seeing internet TV and you know, you're seeing all those other, other, other opportunities. I and mean, that's really the NFL's ridden that better than anybody to epic heights, right? What incredible change. Now, Bob, you joined the Leafs, as you say, it was after an absolutely horrific 84, 85 season when the Leafs finished dead last. Now you're, you've taken your job. You helped. Uh, I'm sure Wendell was looking over at how you negotiated. I hope that helped him in his negotiations for his first contract. What were your expectations as you joined this bottom of the barrel team, but who had just taken on drafted Wendell Clark, things were looking up. What were your uh, excitement level as you started your career with the Leafs in the, in the, in the organization from the business? Yeah. I mean, I think um, it was actually a, a really fun time. I mean, I was 24, 25, right. And the players were mostly my age or younger, right. We had a really, you know, we had, um, because the team had been poor for a number of years, there are a lot of draft choices and Jerry McNamara hadn't traded them. So, I mean, although Wendell was number one, I mean, we all love Wendell, but we finished last one year too late to get Mario Lemieux. Like that would have wow. been a franchise changer, right? The Pittsburgh Penguins the year before finished last got Mario. But, um, uh, but you had, I think like a dozen guys were under 24 on the team, at least. Like, it was a very, it was a younger league there. And so we had, um, you know, um, young players, young, young goalies, young, you know, so it was very much like, a, um, you know, there, there were, it, it was, it was, a, it was an exciting time, I think. And, and again, and, and, and no, and no, none of the players were, I mean, the players, none of them made a ton of money. So, you know, it was, uh, everybody was kind of in the, in the same boat. They weren't living in Forest Hill or Rosedale at that point, the players, they were, you know, they were, um, you know, they were hustling in the summer to make some extra money. And, uh, and, you know, they were young guys, you know, enjoying life and having no fear of video cameras or reper- is it the same kind of repercussions that you have today. Certainly a different time. And, you know, on that note, you know, as a PR person uh, in the, in the past days, um, you had to go reporters and anyone else who wanted to find out the players had to go through you and the team. And today with social media and the digital age, there's this direct connection between the players and, the 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 uh, the population, let's call it. Do you see that as more of a problem, or is that something still an opportunity? Or the importance of the PR person is more today, even though they're not in that relationship, or 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 lessened because of this direct relationship. Yeah, I think it's different. I think I mean we were 
my argument was um, that my job was to advocate for the media with the organization as much as possible. That's what I really saw that as, like trying to, and where I would say the, op- the job of a PR person today is the opposite, is to, it's the more arm's length and keep the guys away from, you know, like what good can come from more media. But the other part is media had huge power um, back then. Those, you know, colonists and key people had huge followings and now they don't. So because people can skip the media and deal, and deal directly. So I would say the PR job is different now. It's, um, it's more of a, a pushback rather yeah. than invite in. And it's more about control. I mean, you, you know, it's more about, and the dress room situations and all those have changed too. The buildings are, you know, players used to, you know, they, they literally, I mean, the guards, the dressing rooms were so small that, you know, guys were naked walking around being talking to media all the time because they could not help but not be, yeah. you know, and today the dress room at, at you know, at, at Scotiabank is, you know, 20 times that size. And so, you know, they bring out select guys, right? I mean, uh, so you, you can't, I wouldn't say ambush a player, but after a bad game, a player couldn't hide. He had to, he had to get his clothes on and go home. Yeah. So he, he, or today, if you don't, you know, MLSE, they, you know, or any sports team, they drum out the same three guys all the time, often. I mean, COVID had changed where I think the NHL pushed them, but they actually had that for the good guys come out. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's actually, but the point right now is, um, you know, we used to say that when, when, um, when I started working at the Blue Jays, the only sports um, show really was, you know, was Sportsline on Global with, you know, Jim Taddy and Mark Hebshire, right? So uh, you open the Global Mail the next morning or the Toronto Star and, you know, which used to be an afternoon paper, right? But, uh, and you, oh, the Blue Jays lost. Oh, the Blue Jays won, right? And I mean, the, and so the, our argument was, um, the, uh, you know, the, and I could have written, you and I could have easily written. I remember like for Paul Patton, the Globe and Mail, like his story would be, would be Toronto Blue Jays, one lost X that, that between whatever. And then it would be Roy Hartsfield says, then it would be, here's what happened in the innings, blah, blah, blah. Like it was a whole the game story. Well, so now no one needs a game story, and, but there was no opinion allowed in the game story. That was really important. So now a yeah. game story is all about opinion. So now the, the writer is gabling it. So then your column is a rant, right? So the column just, you know, can just be completely off the whatever, which I think makes the relationship more challenging with the athletes, you know, and, and, and also just changes the game. Cause you know, you know, when, when people don't like reading nasty things about them and people can't hold grudges and, but, but yeah, but the Twitterverse and all that is, it's insane. Like it's, and I, had, I mean, when they talk about Elon Musk saying he wanted to know how many bots in there, I just don't understand why Twitter just doesn't make everyone have to be on just like Facebook does it or Instagram. You have to be as yourself. Yeah. You can't be Sergey Berezan fan 87. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then just rant constantly every day about, you know, Kyle Dubas did a great job. Kyle Dubas did a bad job. Like, how about you put your own name to it and then you, you own it, right? You know, I, I don't really understand. I don't understand that at all. I mean, but, and then, and that was never brought up in Musk's um, sort of issues with Twitter. It was more yeah. just, you know, bots, but, but I think it's really idiots that yeah. are hiding. You know, one thing, if you're an idiot that can block you, it's another thing if you're an idiot and, uh, and you're just, you know, you, you have 10 accounts, right? Well, it shows you how much the world has changed. I mean, in your career, how much has changed because even today, I think, you know, I'm still, I'm one of the last, that's still a print subscriber to the star on the weekend. And uh, when I pick up my Sunday newspaper and I open the sports, there's a 
picture of the Leaf game had nothing to do with any particular play. And the byline says, you know what, we don't have the score because uh, we had to go to press before a game ended. It's, it's like become almost where the newspaper was number one for sports coverage. Now it's, it's almost an afterthought. Now, I want to talk was, to you because yeah. you did have a front row seat to everything back in the glory days of Maple Leaf Gardens. Yolanda came into uh, Harold's life, an eight-year relationship in the 80s. One of your quotes, you thought it couldn't get any more colorful under Harold Ballard. Well, you added Yolanda to the mix. And it actually did get more colorful. Bob Stella compared the relationship to Archie and Edith Bunker from All in the Family. By the time Yolanda walked into Harold's life, she had done jail time for perjury and was already married and divorced. And the story goes that she showed up for unknown reasons one day holding a cake. And she would not leave until Harold saw her. Her opening line was, we've both been to jail. We have something in common. But she went on to have a relationship with Harold and uh, be came to be seen as someone who was actually a good caregiver for Harold. What was your view of that relationship? And was she more of a Yoko Ono breaking things up or more of a additive to calming Mr. Ballard down? Linda Eastman, that's all you're saying. But uh, yeah, I mean, Yolanda, you know, there was a very fiscal reason that she was trying to connect with Harold Ballard for sure. She, she was broke and, um, or near broke and, um, you know, she was colorful as, as, as we chat that sort of that quote said, but she became more and more reliant because Harold Ballard was, was a diabetic. His health was declining. You know, he was contain He got, was increasingly cantankerous. So she put up with an awful lot. I mean, the rumor was that um, when she, um, when he died, Stavro, uh, gave, Steve Stavro gave her $5 million and a pair of gold tickets for life to keep her mouth shut. And she did. Like she, she never came out and told all or whatever, or, you know, and uh, um, so, yeah, I, I, I would say she was not bad to staff. She was no, this, this was no prima donna type thing. I mean, um, you know, I mean, her, the, the Ballard children hated her because they thought she was trying to steal her, their inheritance. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, I mean, but Harold Ballard wasn't getting along with his children anyway. Like Bill was the only one that he really got on a little bit with or, or more than a little bit at times. But um, yeah, so I mean, a lot of the the Atlanta stuff was misguided. And when you look back, everybody was trying to steal the gardens, yeah. right? Like it, there were no good, like it's that old adage is there's no good guys and there were no good guys in that scenario. There was no yeah. white knight or anyone cared about the charities. It was all, how cheap can we get this building? How can we suppress future revenues, you know, legally or illegally and, uh, and get this building on the cheap and this team on the cheap. And that's what everybody was trying to do. And the land in fairness never contested anything. I mean, you know, she did, did believe that Bill Ballard poisoned her dog and that she would like puck, but I don't think, he, I think that's a, to say a stretch, but uh, yeah, yeah, she became a bit paranoid, but, but uh, yeah, definitely, definitely it was like out of a, out of a, I wouldn't call it a soap opera because that would be too, it would be more like a, maybe it was more like a situation comedy at times for sure. Now, now that you mentioned the dog, TC Puck, the, the story goes that bringing that dog out for the annual on team, uh, on ice team photo was a cute idea, but ultimately not such a great idea for that dog's comfort. Do you, do you know what the problem was? Yeah, that's right. He hadn't been neutered. And, uh, and when you put him on the ice, he couldn't, didn't want to sit down. So that was Yolanda's greatest contribution to our team photo, a towel underneath the puck. So he would not freeze his testicles when he sat down. But, but again, the, the mascots go back. If you look at old, I mean, um, old photos of any team, they are, you know, they have a goat, they have a dog, they have something in that. I mean, the Leafs used to have 
kid mascots way back. Like a Billy Taylor, who was the famous hockey player. And he, later I knew him as a scout when I was scouting. He, you know, he was banned for life for betting. You know, today he'd be on a pro line. He'd be on a commercial, right? Yeah, like that. that's right. Back then he got banned for life. And uh, he, um, he told me that he was like a, he would go on the intermissions do like skating drills and entertain the crowd. Like I, I'm like, okay, that was, that was, I guess at that point we didn't have dogs throwing frisbees or catching frisbees at football games yet. But uh, yeah. So yeah. So park was, uh, and, and the problem was with a team photo, we had to make sure that it was a good shot of Harold Ballard and puck. Those were the two most important. Everyone else's eyes could be closed, but those were the two keys. That's good. Now the other the other life partner of Harold Ballard, at least to the general public, was King Clancy, and uh, nobody can think of that bunker with them sitting watching the game without thinking of Waldorf and Statler from the Muppet Show. But you know they were so accessible to the fans today. The owners and management are, are far away in their private boxes. Did Harold enjoy that kind of accessibility to the fans? And what was his partnership with like with King Clancy? Well, when King died, that was a really bad time for us because King, and that's where Yolanda filled that hole because King was kind of, uh, he was his you know, life partner. You know, they would go to the Ticat games together. They traveled. So as King's health declined, that was really not good. He, he was a great distraction. And King Clancy is a tremendous story. I mean, this guy, you know, one of the great, great players in the history of the game, you know, one of the most expensive bought players, of, uh, you know, when, when the Leafs acquired him. He wanted to become a referee after he played. Can you imagine, you know, Wayne Gretzky becoming a referee to make some money after he played? And, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know, and I remember King, you know, King had like a million great sayings, you know, like, and just, and uh, um, it just, just a really, really decent human being. So he really tempered the Herald side, right? And they owned a racehorse together. They were like, it was like Oscar and Felix, right? And the, uh, the odd couple. Yeah. Like, I mean, Mr. Ballard would joke, yeah, we own half, we own a racehorse together. The too bad I get the half that eats, you know, because Harold had to pay for it. Like, King didn't pay for anything, right? And, uh, you know, it's always those kind of things. They'd go to tie cat games with their stupid half coats that had a leaf and a tie cat on it. And, and then Harold just, I mean, you know, when, I, one of my funny, the funnier stories was in a, I think it was a tie cat playoff game, and you put a rink board up again illegally, so we got fined. We had tie cats on it, yeah. and in the intermission, he decided that you know he was going to go on the ice with a tiger in a convertible, and um, so somehow they located a tiger at that. Um, it wasn't African Lion Safari. It's there's out near Peterborough. There was another wild game preserve thing, yeah. and, they, and they could bring it. So anyway, they bring this tiger down. This poor tiger, and um, anyway, they drugged it so much that it, that that it won't get and it won't get in the convertible. Like it's like it's not a dog, right? It's like in the back of it. And they want to have to drive around with Harold in their mission, and so he just wanted the fans to boo him, right? And uh, so then they just bring it on the ice. So he decides that I mean, this guy, I mean, he's getting really old. He's going to walk on the ice with the tiger on a chain. And, oh boy! Yeah, I mean, it was one of those ones. You went, wow, this could have been it. This could have been it could have been a bloody day, bloody Sunday, but that was, that was Harold. It was just poking the bear was part of the fun. And yeah. I mean, and, but it was, but it was strange. Cause why would you want your own fans to boo you? But he, he liked that. Like it was kind of, he was great for the CFL because he, he really kept the league afloat during some really lean times by keeping that franchise. Going. Well, he really seemed to enjoy, as you say, poking the bear and bringing the tie cats into the Maple Leaf yeah. garden. Sounds like a, a, a thing I wouldn't want to be supporting today. Bob, I want to talk to you about Maple Leaf Gardens. My fondest memories are 
when you go through that concourse and then you would kind of climb up a ramp through those small tunnels. And when you come out into that space of the actual rink and the color, just it overwhelmed you. And I always remember the sounds. You could hear every puck hitting the boards. You could hear the skates. And of course, who can remember, uh, who could forget taking a leak in those huge troughs in the, in the men's washroom? But yeah, the arena unlimited, unlimited number of people could fit in those. <laughs> yes, yeah, certainly there wasn't. You didn't have to wait in line in no. the washroom of the uh, gardens. But the experience today is so much different. Talk about your memories of the gardens. And, and I'm, in, I'm curious about your thoughts on the, the conversion now to the current Loblaws plus Mattamia Athletic Center, whether they did a good job or a bad job. What do you remember about the gardens? And what do you think of the conversion? The, um, well, to me, the gardens, and we, and we fought the historical designation of the gardens because our argument was, I mean, it was our only business asset. So if, if, if it was going to become condos or something or whatever down the road, but our, our argument was it, <clears throat> the building was one point, but it was really the memories that you had in the building. It's everyone has of a certain generation has their first concert memory or their first leaf game memory or a Marley game memory or, and, or coming down and skating on the ice. If they, if you're high school, you know, I mean, they used to give the ice out for the public school um, hockey championships. Like it was quite a um, sort of a, it was a, a, I wouldn't call it a temple, but it was quite a meeting place, right? It was the, the best 16,000 seat venue by far in Toronto, a city that was growing. And uh, I always felt that the building um, had a soul. Like you could kind of come in the building and feel if it was going well or badly. It, it, it kind of lived. Like it was, I don't know how you could say that, it, but it, you know, if it's, it just, it, it just had sort of that kind of life to it. And, uh, um, uh, you know, and then, you know, I did do some work with Ryerson on the, on the conversion, um, you know, just, and I think they did a stunning job. Right. And that, that was, you know, they got the timing was perfect. The, the economy had sort of tanked in 2008. There was a um, federal government um, was giving huge subsidies, infrastructure subsidies to try to stimulate construction. And they were able to get that. And then they, you know, getting Mattamy in there too. I mean, Peter Gilgren and, uh, but the fact, the unique feature of the gardens is the cantilevered roof. There are no pillars. That was the big deal in 1930. And the, the story of the gardens is that it was, um, the land was owned by Eaton's, I think. And Eaton's had opened College Park earlier, just before the Depression. And, and of course, that store was doing really poorly. So they were eager to try to build up the, that area. So, I mean, the one part from the gardens I don't really understand is, you know, why they never purchased land on the west side of it. Like, like they, they didn't buy buffer around it because that would have allowed made it a, a lot more opportunities, but they were, I mean, it was, they were cash tight and, you know, during the, that early times and it, you know, the Carlton street cash box came later for sure. But I think Matt Mattamy did a beautiful job. They, they refurbished it. Um, I mean, they just played the, the global basketball there on the weekend. You know, there's yeah. no better, um, you know, 4,500 or 5,000 seat venue in Toronto. I don't think, I mean, it's really, really nice. I agree with you. I think it's a fantastic job because as you say, they can, it's still got its heritage. It's still got that nice rink, although it's the uh, third floor up and they mm-hmm. kept the facade so beautifully. It's very nice when you compare it to, unfortunately in Montreal, I think they did a horrible job with the form and there's, there's nothing other than the red dot where center ice used to be in the middle of a mall, but they did a yeah. great job. It's funny what you mentioned with the gardens. As I looked it up, it, apparently it was built as you say, during tougher times, during the depression, they built that whole thing in less than six months. Yeah. People used to make fun of me because I, I, I joked that once and, and it kind of stuck in me. It was one of those things for intermission. I just said, you couldn't get a garage built in Toronto in six months. 
True. So everyone go, hey, Bob, are you building any garage? And like, I really could get a garage built. And, uh, but no, and if you talk to the old timers in there, they were saying like the east and the west side of the building were being built simultaneously. So there are actually rooms, nothing matches necessarily. Like it's two different groups were going and they were working off architectural plans, but oh, wow. it didn't quite all, like it's different. And, and because, the, you know, they weren't sure, you know, it's, it was, super super thickly overbuilt you know like the walls are twice as thick as perhaps they need to be now or whatever like they they you know they were just they were putting it up but it, but again they they if you look at the construction site you have all these men walking around with felt hats on <laughs> yeah. you know this is 1930 which a lot was still horses right i mean it was like i i, don't know, I just i give them so much credit and uh, and their argument was when they were building it was that um Stanley Cup liked the new home. That was the argument because it, it, it was part of their theme. It was called Stanley likes a new house or whatever it was, which is quite clever because the Rangers would want a Stanley Cup with a new Madison Square Garden. I think the Montreal Forum was a little bit older. They'd want a Stanley Cup. I think the Olympia might have. Like other guys were, Leafs were, were trying to play catch up from a revenue standpoint. They could not compete again on salaries. They felt with the old beat up Mutual Street Arena, which I think was like nine thousand or maybe even less. Right? Yeah. Now, uh, we, can, we can, I think it sounds like you have a great relationship with your brother. So if you don't mind, we'll talk a little about your brother, Gord. In 88-89, he was the youngest NHL GM ever at just the age of 30. Now, it lasted a season. He then resigned, saying owner Harold Ballard undermined his authority with public criticism and behind-the-scene power plays. You, Bob, as head of PR at that time, did you have to announce your brother's resignation? Yeah, so wait, yeah, well, it was... It was and then I had to figure out whether I was going to be allowed to work anymore. Right. So that was where, or, or, or wanted to work. So, um, Gord, Gord, um, was, it was given a room at the Westbury hotel by the staff at the Westbury. Cause that was our sort of hotel and they really liked Gord. And, and again, that was the power of media. Milt Donnell really undermined Hera of Gord by printing stuff and, and Milt Donnell, who ever, you know, you know, again, was again, long in the tooth again for him. he, you know, the argument was, you know, Harold Ballard, it was, it was a stupid thing. So Gord, Wendell Clark was having all of his injury issues, which chronic back issues. I mean, and later on, Ken Thompson, Lord Thompson flew him to England. Like we couldn't, and, he, and he'd become a distraction, whether he was going to play or not. Mm-hmm. So Gord said to, in the, in the media, he said that at some point, we're just going to have to make a decision and, with Wendell and say, Wendell, let's just shut it down to next year. And the headline, which isn't written by the column, the, the column guy is, um, which isn't written by the, really, I think Rick Matsumoto wrote the story, I'm not sure. But the headline above it was, Stella gives Clark ultimatum. Mm. And that wasn't the article at all. Harold read the, uh, the headline, and then Milt Donnell called him, and then Milt Donnell, like Harold started, you know, he was in a bad mood, I guess, and said, started saying, you know, Stellick's got to watch himself. He's getting a little big for his britches and, you know, telling players what to do. And it was the complete offset. I mean, Gord loved mm-hmm. Wendell Clark and, and we all love Wendell. And, uh, and um, so then he writes this scathing, you know, with all these quotes in it, which really undermined Gord. And, and then even the media guys actually went after Milton L. And Milton L's are like someone said, like, why didn't you call Gord for contacts? He's accessible. He said, why would I bother? I don't respect him enough. I'm thinking, okay, there's, Milt, you're a grumpy old man too, right? And uh, well, Gord, so, Gord had yeah. a great quote about Milton L. He said, uh, 
it's basically when Milt Donnell writes something, it's basically an inner office memo. Yeah. Yeah. Gord's line, when he, he got up to the mic at the Westbury hotel, he went, he goes, I thought public executions were illegal in Toronto. I've been outlawed, but, but yeah, he ended up going to New York for a bit, but yeah, I mean, the joke is he's the youngest GM, the youngest ex GM, but, but at that point, Mr. Brown was right off the rails as far as his health. And so, um, you know, so, and then, that was so that everything went awry from that point on like he was you know floyd smith became sort of the caregiver and, and floyd was a really good hockey guy just wasn't really you know he he wasn't interested in the long term and it just it, it was it was a really really bad time and then really didn't get better until until mr ballard passed and and don giffen came in and they and they brought in cliff fletcher well cliff fletcher certainly uh that era was the revitalization of the leafs in 1994, after being acquired as part of the trade that saw Wendell Clark leave, Matt Sundin arrived in Toronto's camp. He was wearing his comfortable but quite unfashionable Jofa bubble helmet. Uh, uh, what did you urge Matt Sundin to do about his helmet and why? That's right, yeah. I, I suggested that Matt's go to the CCM model to look a little more North American. And uh, um, I look back, I'm, I'm sure other people would have said, I mean, Guys did give Maddox a hard time because he did have a deal with a Volvo dealership too at that time when he had a yellow Volvo. So he looked like a bit of a cliche of a Swede. But uh, yeah, I mean, he wasn't wearing the Wayne Gretzky Jopa either. So it wasn't like I, I could even use protection as an issue, but he did switch and it, it did make him look, for whatever reason, it made him look more. I mean, it didn't make him look better. It just made him look more conforming. And uh, I think it. It, it helped. I mean, Matt Sundin, in my opinion, never got the respect he deserved in Toronto. I mean, he was, and he was a great player, and uh, um, you know, I can only imagine what he'd do and how he would do right now in the NHL with you know even less less body contact, where he could stick his big butt out and no one's getting the puck off him. I, I agree with you 100. percent But I'm still got him ranked number two, second best Swede to play for the Leafs. We never leave this yeah. podcast without talking about Borea Salming. What are your uh, memories of watching him play? And what are your thoughts of him? And I just saw a picture of him at 71. He looks like he could still play. Yeah, I ran into him actually in front of the gardens. I was, uh, my dentist is, a, is, is near the gardens. And I was going <laughs> to the dentist about a month and a half ago. And he was in town because they're doing a Borisami documentary on him in uh, Sweden. And, um, I mean, Borja was Harold's favorite, um, smartly. I mean, Borja could be really crusty. You know, he's a real competitor. And, uh, I mean, the part that I love about Boria is uh, right now is how much he's embraced being a Toronto Maple Leaf. He, you know, when he was playing for the Leafs, you know, he was, I mean, he, you know, he, um, you know, he was so competitive and, and frustrated at times for sure. And, uh, um, you know, he deserved to have a, a Stanley Cup somewhere. You know, when I talked to him, he was saying about, you know, he went to Detroit. Yeah, and that was when Gord was, Jamie Gord thought that he wanted, you know, he was in hindsight, he wished he'd never gone to Detroit. He was telling yeah. him, he was kind of not blaming Gord, but sort of saying, well, of course, you know, I think, you know, you were looking to, and you deserved it, but he looked so weird in a Red Wings outfit. It was totally. the wrong thing for Boria. But yeah, no, like what an athlete you, I mean, um, you know, he, he would be great in any sport. I think one of his daughters is like a heptathlete in, in Sweden. Like, I mean, because Boria would have been a great tennis player. Or he would have been a, yeah. just great, just great at everything. And plus he had that, that, that nasty side that you need a bit to be really good. I mean, he always jokes that, I mean, Inga Hammerstrom would be a guy that ironically went to scout for the Philadelphia Flyers 
But Enga Hammerstrom would be a great, great player in the NHL today. Yeah. But he could not adjust to the in Dave Semenko world where Boria, you speared him, he would give, he would spear you back, right? Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a nasty league in the seventies. If you look, at, look back at some of that stuff, and uh, guys coming from civilized Sweden to this Canadian mayhem, uh, it was not easy to adjust. And he's an incredible business person too, as you may know. I I I have I, I wear the Salming brand of underwear, and uh, when I play floorball, I always use his sticks. Bob, talk yeah. about the Hot Stove Lounge. This uh, in its initial incarnation in Maple Leaf Gardens was this a place to be seen to get deals done? How important was that Hot Stove Lounge? Well, I think the Hot Stove Lounge originally it was a it was the only place you get alcohol, so that was the that was the, the part of the attraction it was set up as a club private club in order to get alcohol they they had to do you know toronto had these very very um archaic liquor laws and um so it was owned by the toronto marley's or something like that. it was all convoluted but it was a very small place but it was a um yeah so that the key to the hard key with there is if you if you booked a dinner there, you could also get access to tickets. So that was a big plus for it as well. Mm-hmm. But again, it was, it was a small area, but it was a, um, you know, it was definitely a, um, you know, I won't call it a who's who, but it was just, it was definitely a hot spot in Maple Leaf Gardens. That's for sure. Particularly, I think back when people drank a lot more than they do now. Well, sure. And in and, and your job with business operations with the Leafs, when you talk now, you're educating me on how there wasn't even alcohol available you could only get it through the hot stove lounge. Now we got the, we're in the era of the $16 beers. I mean, the revenue handles itself today. I mean, what a different world. Yeah, it's, I mean, completely. I mean, no one could have anticipated the inelasticity of demand of ticket prices, how much you could increase them. That's for sure. And uh, um, yeah. And, and again, just uh, um, yeah, I mean, sport in general has just exploded worldwide. I mean, to think even in the last decade, you know, TFC franchises have gone from 5 million or 10 million to 150 million. I, I really don't understand that at all. I mean, uh, to me, that's a, like the, it's like the American hockey league selling for $150 million, right? I mean, it's not the top tier of the game. And, and do I really want to watch an MLS game that doesn't involve my hometown team? I don't think so. But again, that's proven me wrong for sure. So well, there's, there's lots to learn still in sport. I've certainly been proven wrong on the soccer as well. But, you know, something interesting is I always think of our town as a hockey town, Leafs town. There's nobody that's going to compare. But I wondered if you had any challenges when you started in 86, Bob. The Blue Jays had just come off the drive of 85. Did that actually affect the status? The Leafs were at the bottom. The Blue Jays were kind of rising. Did you see any effect on the Leaf business as you entered that organization? Or was Leafs are always going to have their, their crowd? absolutely there it was a the blue jays owned toronto at that point so the drive of 85 was right when i started for the leafs so we had, we dropped the puck at maple leaf gardens um for training camp and it was the same day the blue jays were in playing an important game and when the leafs started training camp i think we had jim proudfoot and one other guy in the building everybody was down at uh, down at the at cne for the blue jays um later on the telemedia radio network if you wanted to take if you wanted the Blue Jays broadcast, you had to take the Leaf Radio broadcast for a while. I mean, I mean, until Cliff came in, I mean, our payroll when Gore was GM was five million. The Blue Jays was fifty million U.S. Wow. You know, I mean, upwards of that, and uh, um, you know, just I mean, the Blue Jay players were a complete household name. The, certainly, the Leaf players were too, but um, 
I mean, they were winning. They had um, their ownership was, you know, Labatt, you know, and who didn't, you didn't even know they owned it. And then Paul Beeston and Pat Gillick were just superlative managers and just wonderful human beings. And so they had none of the downside of Harold Ballard, right? There was no, this was the beginning of much more professional sports operation than we were running. Yeah. In your reign and your era with the lease, Bob, I think, 1993 must have been the ultimate high. Nick Borshevsky's overtime winner against the Wings, followed by the, the famous Gilmore goal against the Blues. Didn't end our way. One one win away from the finals, which would have been against Montreal. What do you remember about 93? And is that indeed your, your kind of favorite year of the Leafs, or do you have another year that really sticks out in your time there? Yeah, I think that, that would definitely, that was definitely it. I mean, um, I think the part that you forget was, or you, or you don't realize is um, how hard it is to win and how you're not going to have a, another chance, right? Like teams, like when we lost in the semis, I thought, well, we'll be back next year. But we're, we were in the semis again, but we weren't nearly as good. We lost in five games to Vancouver. And, um, but so to me, that was the, um, um, that was the penultimate team. I mean, Doug Gilmore was the ultimate leader. Pat, Pat Burns was a, like just a great bench coach. He was that guy that you could watch him from the press box and you saw him doing stuff. And you learned from Pat too about, um, you know, how, how he worked his players and his bench, you know, how he didn't fight with his best players. That was for sure. He wasn't doing that. And, and just, you know, how he, you know, his big ego helped absorb some of the noise from the rest of it. And then just Cliff being such a, a solid human being and such a solid manager and the, and the team just feeling really stable at that point, you know, financially really stable and um you know i mean i think that you know that, that you know people had a had a good time i would say the only mistake we made in that era was not properly air conditioning the building because that was the biggest like you know, when you look back it was hot and you know not a not a great environment for the guys to play in uh talk more about that i didn't uh, i didn't appreciate that that was because it wasn't available or it wasn't turned on or and did it affect no, the ice you mean or it affected the oh, vibe everything i mean we were encouraging people to come to the games in shorts we actually sent out like press release come to the game in shorts it's going to be hot and and because the, the don giffen who was president for a while he put in a he was a president of a sheet metal company like a big com- a construction company and he got this idea rather than air conditioning when harold was alive this cheaper version that of a dehumidifier and scooping the air out and it didn't work and he put big fans on the roof but all the people in the apartments behind me with gardens complained, so we couldn't turn them on most of the time. I can believe that you live behind, it's like living outside a frat house, and you don't, you know, every like Maple Gardens was treated by it was bizarre. We were treated like um, the gardens was like uh, the Kyle, I'm sorry, the, the local alderman didn't like us. It was turning into the, the gay community, and we weren't really part of that. And uh, we were considered a nuisance and uh, you know, like a high tax paying nuisance. Cause when, when the gardens closed, the whole neighborhood went to the pot, right. That's, it really dropped right. for a long, it was terrible. Like it, got, it looked like bad streets in New York for a while, but uh, um, yeah. So that, that was the, you know, the one thing instead of putting proper chillers on the, on the building, and that would have made the building better for summer concerts, better for other stuff. So that was the, I think that was Harold Ballard's one huge mistake you know, and, uh, um, but again, I don't think that, I don't think they ever, uh, I don't think they ever air conditioned the form in Montreal either. It just wasn't thought of, right? It was again, his wheelhouse rinks aren't done. That's not the way to do it. 
Well, you bring up something interesting, Bob. You say, once you're there at this high level at, at year 93, you say, oh, we'll get back there. But you realize how difficult it is. In today's era, it's been commonly said, yeah, you win, but there's 31 other teams that didn't get there. And, and you're, it's a really tough brass ring to go after. So, of course, on that note, I have to ask, are the, big, are the Leafs built to win? Or should this be the end of the Shanna plan and move on from Kyle Dubas? Where are we today, Bob Stelic? Well, I think they're at they're at their um, they're at their sort of you know we have to win the playoff round. I mean, my problem is starting with and I love Ken Dryden, but you know it was people throw the word Stanley Cup around really far too lightly in an organization that hasn't won it since 1967. So we would never use the word Stanley Cup. It was compete. It was improve. It was go deep, win rounds. And I think that's that's the mistake that they have that, that you have to win a round to get to win a second round. And like they always say, the first round's often the hardest to win for some bizarre reason. They think that there's that there's that sort of line. So well, I mean, yeah, I mean they had a spectacular regular season. Um, you know, they're you know they're they're certainly hampered by the salary gap for sure. Um, you know, I just you know I, my only thing is you know be humble. You know don't think you're smarter than everybody else. Cause you're not like, no, like this idea that, you know, um, th- as you said, 31 other teams all hire the smartest people, every, you know, the teams, you know, you know, there's, there's no secret sauce. I mean, finishing last allowed them to get some of the great players they had finishing poorly. That's the same as with the Leafs when, when Wendell, but you know, they got Austin Matthews who's, you know, except for a wrist and that, or, you know, maybe a little bit of back. He's been pretty, he's been real, pretty healthy. I mean, great, great, great generational type of player, and uh, so yeah, I, I think I think they're, they've got to be feeling the pressure this year. They've, you know, you know, they, they, you you've got a huge staff working there now too. Like this, it's a lot of people. Yeah, and and you know, you know, you can pretend people are capologists. You can pretend old guys take haircuts to come here or whatever it is, but um, it, it it's a funny league right now in the sense that the the best played, the best players aren't paid enough and the middle guys are paid too much. Like, you know, like the Sidney Crosby's should be making double what they make. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all these guys that make 5 million in the NHL and you look at them and you go, that makes $5 million. Like I don't even notice them. Like you want to pay for the people you show up to watch. Right. Mm-hmm. But the way the cap was and the way the NHLPA sort of done it is they've, they've really helped that middle group. You know, the rookies have been suppressed. And um, and the top guys are suppressed. Even though people say, "What's well, eleven million dollars?" Well, maybe it's like forty million, isn't it, Max, or thirty-five yeah. or thirty-eight? But again, different impact. But um, uh, yeah, so that's a, that problem is that uh, at least with giving their big guys super max or whatever, it's just it's it's tough to fill out your roster under a salary cap era. So I hope that, I mean the fans deserve it. The you know, organization deserves it. Let's hope. We well said. Let's hope. As your humble host, I'm going to go on record saying I, I, we got to give them another year. They were one goal away, and they, they sure. ran into a very tough Tampa team. So you're right. Let's have hope. Bob, thanks for your time today. As we wrap up, I want to ask you about your plans for the remainder of 2022 and beyond. What are you working on at work? What's, what projects are you into? I think it's a, it's a new normal. I think what we, what we do a lot is, is, is community work. You know, like we, we run a program for McDonald's with 50,000 kids nine or 10 year olds for house league kids. I think it's, I think it's like, let's get the world back to what a new normal is, which may be a little kinder, gentler, simpler time. Right. And that's, uh, but uh, you know, as people trickle back to work and, and people can start doing things, I think, I think it's going to be 
hopefully it's going to be an exciting time for us and a lot of other people. Let's, you know, we've had a, the last three, two and a half years have been either the longest or like a blink. I haven't been able to figure out what, but, uh, you know, do they count against your age or not? <laughs> well, we're going to find out. We're going to find out. But as you say, onwards and upwards. Bob, thanks for your time. It was great having you. Where can we best follow you and Stellic Marketing Communications? It's really Stellic.com, I guess, if you want to check out who we are and see what we do. And, uh, you know, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's been a pleasure chatting with you as well. Well, thank you very much. And to the listener, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast. And on behalf of Bob Stellick, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. happens when we play outside we become healthier both mentally and physically we become more creative and more focused we connect with nature each other and ourselves let's take this outside a new podcast hosted by me marianne iveson an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover i speak to athletes outdoor professionals and scientists about their connection to nature how it affects their performance and everyday life Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast, NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network.